Welcome to the Ghostly Gallery podcast, a place where we explore the world of horror in film, television, books, and in popular culture. Hello, everyone. My name is Bruce Markison, and as always, I am joined by co-host and producer Tracy Asteria. Hello, Tracy. How's it going? Much better this time, Bruce. Um, the snow is pretty much cleared up, and we are now awaiting a nor'easter coming in on Tuesday and Wednesday, <laughs> which Lovely. might bring lots of snow. But beautiful. I'm going to stay positive. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, there's been a development here at my house the last since the last time I talked to you. I was given a belated birthday present by my wife and daughter, and it just kind of came in the mail yesterday, and it's a beautiful Svengoolie lunchbox. Aww. Really nice. Really, really nice. So I, I, you know, I'd already been treated well on my birthday, which is January 30th for anybody that's interested. And they told me, well, there's one of the present you're going to be getting, and it is going to be a few days late, and it turned out to be really nice. So uh, I've been watching Sven Gulli on a regular basis now for a while, so it was kind of kind of cool to get uh, an official Sven Gulli MeTV lunchbox added to my collection. Oh, gosh, I need to see that. <laughs> Yeah, uh, my camera is not on right now. And of course, this is usually an audio show, but uh, uh, maybe at the end of the show, when we're done recording, I'll put my camera back on and, and show you what it looks like. It's it's pretty uh. cool. Uh, it's added to my collection, which also includes one for Scream. I've got one for classic horror like Frankenstein. Uh, I think I've got Creature from the Black Lagoon and I've got two for the Addams Family which uh, is one of my favorite shows. No, not The Addams Family, The Munsters. I like The Addams Family, but it's actually two for The Munsters. Uh, one is kind of a miniature lunchbox and one is regular sized. And uh, we were able to get those on Amazon. Those were old Christmas presents that my family came up with for me. So that's the lunchbox update uh, for the Marcuson house. Uh, this is really riveting stuff, of course. <laughs> We're going to get to far more riveting material now with our guest this week, and he is Dracula expert Tucker Christine. Tucker joined us on one of our earliest episodes. This was back in the summer of 2023, episode number three, when we really didn't know what we were doing at that point. So now we're going to do a much better job interrogating Tucker second time through. Uh, Tucker was great the first time, and uh, we expect nothing less a uh, second time. Tucker, welcome back to the show. How you been? I've been good, man. I, I've, I've been really loving your podcast. Uh, my episode is the only one I can't listen to. <laughs> you know, it is funny about listening to yourself or seeing yourself on camera. It's I hate it. I really don't like listening to myself or seeing myself. I don't like seeing pictures of myself or video. I think that's a common thing with people. You know, it is. It definitely is for me. You know, back during the pandemic, I did uh, uh, Sundays with Dracula for the Rosenback, and I was on every fourth week. And last summer, I rewatched the whole thing, except I missed every fourth episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, though, we're our harshest critics. We don't like seeing ourselves or listening to ourselves. But I think the reality is that we actually probably come across better than we think. We just, listening to ourselves, we pick apart every mistake. Not that we're necessarily making a lot of mistakes, but every time we hesitate or we maybe say something not as smoothly as we had planned, I think that's just kind of a natural thing. And, and I think most people, when they look at other people on camera or hear them, on a microphone, uh, they're not as critical. And I think they, they hear it and see it in a much better way. Uh, at least I'd like to think that that is the case. Um, now, for those who are not familiar with Tucker, and uh, we want you to be familiar with him because he does some great work in the area of Dracula. Tucker is the publisher of Dracula Beyond Stoker. It's a literary magazine that features articles related to the Dracula legend. The newest issue, number 3.5, is just out. And it focuses on stories involving Renfield and the so-called Bluefer Lady, whom we'll explain later on. Also, Tucker has a remarkable collection of Dracula books and memorabilia. He is uh, 
really quite the expert on the subject of everything related to Dracula. Tucker, for those who are not familiar with what you have done, tell us about your Dracula Beyond Stoker literary effort and why you decided to do this. Uh, I know that it's something that you love, but it is a lot of work. It takes a tremendous amount of time and effort. Why did you decide to get involved in something like this? Because uh, I'm insane. It was actually, as I said, I did uh, Drac or uh, Sundays with Dracula during the pandemic, and during the course of that show, somebody had asked if there was a database of all the stories that other people wrote using Stoker's characters, and we looked into it and we couldn't find any. So by the end of that week, I had made that database, and that's an ongoing database now. It's at DraculaBeyondStoker.com. And anytime I find a new story or a novel or a play that uses Stoker's characters or themes in any way, shape, or form, I put it up there with as much information as I can about it. But in the course of, of putting that together, A, I was really having fun finding the stories, but I was also finding stories that were so old and so long out of print or so hard to find that I wanted to find a way to make it more accessible for people to find these stories. And I also wanted to find a way to just keep the tradition going. So I, I decided to uh, to start this magazine. It's called Dracula Beyond Stoker. Uh, it's mostly news stories. Uh, each issue is 10 to 12 news stories that I ask for people to send submissions in based on whatever the theme is for that issue. Um, I'll have one nonfiction article, maybe sometimes two, and a reprint and a poem. And then for the, the, those issues come out every six months. They come out in May and November, which are the, the start and end dates of the novel. And then in February and August, I do what we call half issues. And that started out as a way to tie the uh, main issues together. So the first issue was all Dracula stories. The second issue was all Renfield stories. 1.5 came out in the August in between. And that was, uh, that was one Dracula story and one Renfield story, just to say, hey, this is what's coming. When I got to 2.5, I actually found a story that got me really excited. It was from 1930. It was from uh, it was published over two issues in 1930 of Weird Tales magazine. And it was called Another Dracula by an author named Ralph Milne Farley, who did a lot of pulp work back in the 30s and 40s. And this story does not include Dracula as a character, mm -hmm. but it includes a small town who thinks they have a vampire infestation and everybody in the town is aware of the novel. The movie, the Bella Lugosi movie hadn't come out yet, but the play was already popular. Dracula was on his way to becoming what we know it as today. And in this story, they pretty much use the novel Dracula as a guide for how to deal with what they think is their vampire infestation and once i found that i got so excited about it i ha i spent months tracking down the rights to it luckily I, I was able to find the rights to it and the original art that came in the magazine and i put that out as issue 2.5 i, I got okay. a artist out of scotland by the name of simon chinook to uh to do a really awesome like cover for it and it's, it's a beautiful beautiful cover so would you mind chatting about maybe a couple of your collaborators that send in submissions to you? And if somebody was interested in sending or sharing some stories with you, how would how would they go about doing that? So the, the website for the magazine itself is dbspress.com. And that will have all the, uh, the submission guidelines for it. Okay. Um, it tells you the website to, to send the submissions to, which is easily enough submissions at DraculaBeyondStoker.com. Um, the next issue after the next issue I'm working on right now, submissions are already closed and that's going to be the Brides of Dracula. That issue will come out in May. The issue after that will be the suitors of Lucy. So it'll be Seward, Homewood and Quincy either together as adventurers or individually, how, however however you want to write the story, you send it in, we'll take a look at it, and if it works, it will put it in. As far as uh, people that we've had in there, uh, 
a regular collaborator is uh, a guy by the name of Chris McCauley, who happens to be Baker Stoker's business partner in the Stokerverse. Baker Stoker is the great grandnephew of Bram Stoker. And he and Chris have taken upon themselves to try to bring all of Stoker's works together in a shared universe uh, for a modern audience. They, they're doing it over short stories and novels and comic books and role-playing games and video games. They're, they're, they're really doing a hell of a job. I've got writers from all over the world. Uh, uh, Laura Keating is out of, out of uh, Canada. She, she's a first-time novelist. Her novel, uh, uh, Agony's Lodestone, just came out about three months ago. Right was her Renfield story. She had a, a, her Agony's Lodestone come out. It is fantastic. It's a, it's a found footage haunted wood story. It's, it's really great. Um, I've got writers out of Portugal. I've got writers that, uh, for some reason, like half of the Renfield issue came from Australia and New Zealand. I don't know how that happened. I don't know. <laughs> oh, wow. So it seems like a lot of your collaborators and writers, they, they're from all around the world. Oh, that is fantastic to hear. Yeah. And one of them is uh, someone we've had on a couple of times, Brian Forrest, Toothpickings, another, another standout writer as well. So Tucker, you mentioned that issue 3.5, there's a story about Renfield. And I know Renfield is a really important character, not only for you, but for a lot of Dracula fans. Why do you think that is the case? What is it about Renfield that makes him such an important part of what Stoker did and what some of the films have done over the years? What makes Renfield such an important part of this entire canon of Dracula? I think Renfield's one of the more sympathetic characters. He, uh, he gets sucked into this thing without his, without wanting to. He, throughout the book, he wants to be helpful to Van Helsing and and, and me and Jonathan, and he's he's helpless. He can't. He, it's beyond his control. Dracula completely controls everything he does. In looking at some of the film depictions of Renfield over the years, do you have a particular favorite? I, I love Dwight Fry. Dwight Fry is awesome. And I think Nicholas Holt did a fantastic job of channeling Dwight Fry. Yeah. Especially in, in especially in the beginning of that Renfield movie. When they when they uh put him into the old movie, he did a great job of, of channeling that. And uh I love Tom Waits and anything Tom Waits does. So you can't beat him. And he was in the nineteen ninety two one, right? Yes. Yes, yeah. he's in the co yeah. He works with Coppola a lot. Right. You know, I wonder what audiences thought of Dwight Fry, because even now, when we look back at that performance from 1931, it's still pretty striking. And we've been conditioned to expect a lot of craziness in horror films. But back then, that must have really been shocking to audiences to see that kind of a character on screen. Oh, especially that, that laugh that he does. It's in theory. It's ridiculous, but in practice, it's chilling. You know, yeah. That laugh is probably the scariest part of that movie. So, Runfield is one of the the characters in your most recent issue. Yes, uh, but another is the so called bluefer lady, and that term is not particularly well known, especially for those that don't study Dracula closely, like you do. Explain to us exactly who this bluefer lady is. So after Lucy was turned into a vampire by Dracula, but before, before they staked her, there were newspaper clippings about child, children being abducted and, and harmed. Uh, and they all spoke about being taken by the bluefer lady, which they determined to be child speaker, beautiful lady. And so the Blue Lady is Lucy Westerner. In our issue 3.5, the Blue Lady story is uh, an organization that was started by Lord Homewood. They were a supernatural investigation uh, organization, but they're way beyond Homewood now. They're way beyond their founding, and they've kind of forgotten why they were founded. 
one of their members thinks he's figured it out and he connects home with to the bluefer lady and he has found a way to see if the rumors of the blue lady are true and they track down her her crypt and he has a he has a ceremony to revive her and things do not go as well as they think they're going to go is one of the things about the bluefer lady that's kind of frightening is the the fact that she is seen by children and that that brings kids into this equation and that makes it even more horrific? I think that's part of it. Uh, but Stoker was not afraid to have children being attacked because he has the bride speed on the baby earlier in the book. So. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the, the, the fact that she feeds on children, but at the same time, she, she does release them back into the wild, if you want to put it that way. Yeah. She doesn't drain them completely. She feeds on them and, and, and sends them home. So these are some of the stories in this uh, most recent issue that you've done. And you've also sent out, um, you've gotten submissions now for your next issue, which is going to be coming up in May. And the focus there is the Brides of Dracula. Tell us a little bit more about that. So the, the Brides of Dracula, every issue has a theme, like I said. So we started with Dracula and I have, I have a logical progression in my head of where it's going. And if you're paying attention, you can figure out what that progression is and how each one connects to the next one. So it started with Dracula, then it went to Renfield, then it went to Lucy, and next it's going to the Brides. And the Brides, I think, is a, is a, good, a good prompt for writers because they're not tied down to the baggage of other characters that are more fleshed out. Because Stoker tells us absolutely nothing about the Brides. The only thing we know about the brides is they live in the castle. There's three of them. You know? Yeah. That's about it. They, they, they get mad at Dracula because they say he never loved. You know? <laughs> but other than that, the, the writers can take it wherever they want to go. They show us what they were beforehand. Have them survive. Have them, they, 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 they cheated death somehow and Van Helsing didn't get them. Show us what happens there. You know, show us what happens when when Dracula leaves the castle and they're, ha- they're home alone for months on end. You know, it's interesting that he doesn't write much about them. They're talked about early in the book, and then I'm not sure if they actually even return later on. They, they return to be staked by Van Helsing. And that's toward the end? Yep. Yeah. They, they, they try to seduce Mina into joining them and leaving Van Helsing. And and then he goes in the morning, he goes into the curtain, stakes and beheads. Then you look at the history of Dracula films. They're not necessarily given that much attention. There was that one movie that Hammer did in the early 1960s, which really is excellent, The Brides of Dracula. I think it's one of the better Hammer vampire films. Um, but then other than that, it's it's not a subject matter that's really been delved into all that much. Any thoughts or theories as to why that might be? I, I think they're just following the tradition that, that Stoker set out. You know, they, yeah. they're there to look pretty. When they are there, they're just there to look pretty. Yeah. What did you think of the Hammer film? I assume you've seen it? It's been a long time since I've seen it, but yeah, I remember there's no Dracula in that one at all, though. It's just the prize, right? It's, it's there's a vampire, but he's he's not Dracula, and it's not Christopher he, Lee. It's a less-known actor, David Peel. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's it, it's uh, it's a good movie, but it's really not a Dracula movie. It is more centered on the brides and on Van Helsing, who is there in the form, of course, of of Peter Cushing. Um, so this this issue will be coming out uh, in May, and this will be a full issue, right? That'll be a full issue. Yes. And Tucker, for those who would like to subscribe and not only pick up that issue, but, you know, have a yearly subscription, is there a way for them to do that? What's the best way? I'm really on a uh, on an issue by issue basis. I don't really have a subscription service set up yet, but all the issues are available on dbspress.com. Um, and you can I, purchase them. You can purchase them individually right there. You purchase them individually. I have some bundles up there so you can they save money by buying multiples together. There's no purchase link for the uh, Brides one yet. Um, 
once I have the stories finalized and, and know what my final page kill is going to be, then I'll, I'll have it up there. Right. So we've talked a little bit about Renfield, and I want to bring up the movie that came out last year. It was in the spring of 2023, and you did reference it earlier. It's uh, the movie with Nicholas Holt and Nicholas Cage. And I know that you're a big fan of the film. Tell us what you like about the 2023 film version of Renfield. I, I really like, well, I, I like the uh, beginning where they insert Cage and Holt into the 31 movie. But I love the humor because it's, it's a sick sense of humor that it's got. And I like that it's a secret superhero movie. I, that's what I always tell people. I said, don't go into this expecting a horror movie. This is a secret superhero movie. And and Renfield himself is the superhero. Uh, he, he eats those bugs and he gets his powers. And it, it's just a lot of fun. It's very comedic as well. It's not one that you should go in expecting this is going to be a serious straight horror movie. It, it's it's also, I think, the perfect level of Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage can sometimes be over the top. And he he skirts the line here. He's almost there. But he's he's just under the line. And he's like perfect. <laughs> I have to confess, I hadn't been familiar with Nicholas Holt's work prior to that movie. I thought he was great here. He, he was really good. And uh, he was also in a movie last year or two years ago called The Menu. And that's an ensemble piece. And he kind of disappears into that one. So other people outshine him. But he's, uh, the whole cast in that movie is really good. He's also uh, he's going to be playing the Harker role in uh, Nosferatu next year. Or I guess this yes. year. That's right. I, I want to talk about that film a little bit. Obviously, it hasn't come out yet, but there's been a lot of hype about it. Uh, we had uh, a great author and historian, Gary Don Rhodes, on a few weeks ago, and he's really bullish on that movie. He's expecting a, a lot with it coming out. The thing about the Renfield movie last year, it was a box office bomb. It did not do well. Any thoughts so, on why that might have been the case? So the last. The last four movies, the last four Dracula movies come out in the last two years have all bombed. And I don't know that this is the reason. I don't know that it would have done any different if they changed it up. But none of them had Dracula in the title. You had Renfield. You had The Last Voyage of the Demeter. You had The Invitation. And you had House of Darkness. And none of them say Dracula. None of them. Uh, some of them, the uh, the marketing didn't even tell you that it was a Dracula movie. Uh, I think the invitation for good reason for that one because it was a nice surprise. But uh, mm -hmm. I I like to think they might have done better if they let people know they were Dracula movies. I could be wrong. I saw the invitation. I know that it didn't get great reviews. I thought it was pretty good. I I thought that was the best of those four movies. I, I really like that one. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure why people didn't like it or why the reviewers didn't like it. I didn't see House of Darkness, so I can't comment on that one. House of Darkness, it, it, so it's, it was written and directed by Neil Laboot, who's a, he's a playwright, and it, it feels like a play when you're watching it. Yeah. It's a, it's a, I think there's only four people in the entire cast. Uh, it's mostly Justin Long and Kate Bosworth for like half the movie before anybody else comes in. It's, it's, that's the least of the four. Let's say that. Yeah. In, in the best of the four, and that one was the least of the four. Right. All right. Well, let's talk about one of the four. And it's a movie that Tracy and I have talked about from time to time on this program. And that's The Last Voyage of the Demeter. Uh, it debuted in August of last year with a lot of anticipation. And it drew only mixed reviews. Uh, it also did very poorly at the box office. And I want to talk about that in a moment. But I, I liked it. Tracy thought it was pretty good, too. And I know that you really liked it. Tell us what it is about that movie that really hit a stride with you. I think that was different for a Dracula movie. They're not often attempting to be scary anymore, if that makes sense. And that one, at least at the very least, attempted to. It didn't always succeed but it attempted to at least have some tension and be scary. Yeah. Whereas a lot of other Dracula movies, they're like, you know what's going on here. We're just going to show it to you, or we're going to make it funny. 
we're going to put a twist on it somehow. But that one actually attempted to be frightening. One of the criticisms I heard of it, some people didn't like the fact that it basically showed Dracula as an inhuman beast. We got very little of him, except at the very end, of him as a, as a human being. Is that a legitimate criticism? Um, I actually like that aspect of it. I, I like the concept that his human form is actually his disguise. I think they actually say that in the movie that, that, that they, he's actually the monster, and when he's a human, it's that has him disguising himself. And I, I like that idea. Yeah. Um, I actually didn't like the end because I think he was too monstrous looking still at the end, and he's sitting there in a bar looking like a monster. It's like who's who's going to talk to this guy? <laughs> yeah. Mister Hyde in uh, the 1931 movie with Frederick March, where he's. He's sitting in a bar and just looks absolutely ghastly, and yet a lot of people don't necessarily notice him. That's in a way that's kind of hard to believe. Yeah, yeah, he he was he wasn't sneaking out of that bar unseen, you know. <laughs> right. Do Do you think they left it open? Just because I th I thought it was kind of a different type of an ending for that movie. Do you think they left it open for a possibility, like they could write another story as a? I think they were hoping. And I wish mm -hmm. it was better so we could see what they were thinking. But I, I don't think we'll ever see what they had in mind. Now, like the other movies, it did poorly at the box office. And you mentioned the absence of Dracula in the title as, as a possible reason for all these movies struggling. There was also the issue of competition. It came out during the summer of 2023, which was dominated by two other films, Barbie and Oppenheimer. I think that's a considerable factor. Is it the only one? Are there other things at play here? There could be the, uh, a million things at play. I mean, it had no real stars. Um, it, it's, like you said, it's, it's got competition. I don't think a whole lot of horror movies did great last year. Yeah, it, it could be any number of things. But It but was those... highly anticipated. We We talked about it. Uh, when we had you on and before the movie came out and, and you were expecting big things, I was expecting big things. And in terms of its quality, I think it delivered, but certainly the, the numbers at the box office were not there. I almost think, Tucker, this is one of those films, they should have maybe looked at the landscape and said, you know, these other two movies, that's what everybody's talking about. Maybe we wait until October Maybe we wait until Halloween. I mean, that's happened before with films where they get delayed for a number of reasons. That, to me, that might have been the smart thing to do here. I never understand when a horror movie's not at Halloween time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I would spend the whole month of October in a theater if they put all the horror movies out in October. Yeah. The only, actually, the only four movies I went to see in the theater last year were Renfield, Demeter, Barbie, and Oppenheimer. Well, I got to ask you, I, I didn't see either Barbie or Oppenheimer. What'd you think of those two? I like them both. I, I really will be surprised if anything beats Oppenheimer at the Oscars this year. Yeah. It was a, it was a phenomenal <laughs> It was, and Killian Murphy just disappeared into that role. I mean, mm. like, like Killian Murphy wasn't even on the screen. That was somebody else completely, you know? And, and Barbie was fun. Or I saw, I watched, I watched both those with my daughter. We did the Barbenheimer double feature, my daughter and I. Oh, in uh, one night, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We we went to see, went to see uh, Oppenheimer first, and we went to have pizza, and we went back and watched Barbie. All right. Well, I give you credit. Were you awake by the end? Oh yeah, yeah. We did it in the, early in the day. So. <laughs> yeah. Let me pick up on one other point you mentioned a moment ago. It was not really a great year for horror in general at the box office. And I'm wondering if that might lead to more streaming films, um, more films that, you know, are targeted for one of the streaming channels. Tubi is doing a lot of, you know, made for Tubi horror. Not a lot of it's necessarily good, but there, there have been a couple of, of decent films that have come out of that. Um, there was a, a film that came out um, last year, and, and I'm blanking on the title right now, 
Uh, Tracy might remember because we talked about it during one of the shows. It's the one that's uh, set in the 1960s where the village uh, every year has this tradition on a Halloween night and they're chasing down uh, the character of Jack. And if they're not able to capture and kill him before midnight, it's going to be a bad year for the town. It's going to be a bad year for the crops. It'll come to me. But anyway, it was a really good movie. It was my favorite horror movie of all the ones that I saw last year. But it was a movie that was not released in theaters. It, I believe, came out on MGM+. Plus. That's where it debuted. That's where it stayed. And I actually specifically got a temporary subscription to that channel just so that I could watch it because some people had told me that it was really good. And it turned out to be just that. I'm wondering, Tucker, is do you see that as the future for horror? More and more streaming, less and less actual theatrical releases. Yeah, I think so, but I really don't think it's anything new. If you remember the the days of VHS, there were so many more horror movies that just went straight to video than actually went to the theater. And they were all the good ones, you know? These like the New York Ripper and, and, and stuff like that. It was all the stuff that you wanted to see went straight to video. It didn't go to the theater. Yeah. And I, I, I'm hoping, I'm not, I shouldn't say hoping, but I'm thinking we're, we're getting back to that just with the streaming services. Well, I guess there's some good to that in that you don't have to pay the ticket price to go to the theater. But on the downside, you don't get to see the film on the big screen with other people. That's kind of a big part of the horror community. So that's, there's a negative and, uh, to that, too. And it's also fractured, too, because the days of VHS, you go to your local blockbuster and anybody could get anything. Now, like you said, what, that movie that you watched, I never even heard of. It's because it's on MGM Plus. And I don't have that. So I'm, I'm hearing it from you for the first time. And... Now I have to make a decision. Do I get MGM Plus for her to, to check it out? Or when, when things are more accessible, they're, they're more watched, you know? Well, I think it's going to be an interesting future to watch for horror in the theater and, and, and that kind of an experience. But you make a good point. This, this is something that's been going on for quite a while, where uh, a number of, of great horror films have gone straight to video, have gone straight to streaming, and so in a sense, it's it's not a new development. One final area that I'd like to talk about with you tonight, Tucker, is your collection of Dracula memorabilia. You've got hundreds of books. You've got lots of interesting artifacts that you've picked up. I know you picked up some items on your recent trip to New Orleans with your family. Um, anything that you've added to your collection since we talked to you uh, last summer? Actually, yeah, I, uh, I, as something that's really pretty common to Dracula collectors that I just happened to lose a copy of. So I had to, I had to rebuy something that I already used to have, <laughs> but, uh, I got two copies of the Gross and Dunlop versions of, of Dracula, which if you're not familiar, Dracula was first published in 1897 by Archibald Constable in London. And then in 1899 by Doubleday uh, in, in America. And then in the 20s, the, uh, it got licensed out to a company called Grosset and Dunlop. And that is the most common of the older versions. And you'll see a pop-up on auctions all the time where they say this is the first edition. I'll try to get outrageous amounts of money for it. But even though it's the most common, it's something that if you're a collector, you have to have in your collection. So I was able to find one of the early ones. Um, so like, I think it's about 26, 27 is when they started doing it. And then that the original version was in on tan boards with, with tan writing. And then when the uh, movie came out, they did a version with, four photographs from from the Lugosi movie in it, and they put it in red boards with black writing. So I was able to actually get both the, the tan one and the red and black one. They're very hard to come by with original dust covers. So both of mine actually have uh, facsimile dust covers. There, there is one more that is actually black with red lettering that I've seen twice now. 
but I've never been able to, I've never been able to win the auction for the, the black with red, right? I'm, I'm not going to say specifically what it is because I'm hoping, I'm hoping to get something out of it for the, the magazine to be a surprise later on down the road. But I, I got an old, another old pulp magazine with a Dracula story that I was able to win at auction. And I'm now in the process of tracking down the copyright for it. Would you like to tell our listeners some of the events that you'll be going to over the next couple of months, just so they can keep an eye on where you're going to be? Sure. I, I go to a lot of events, uh, usually over the summertime when I'm when they're more available, um, to, to sell the magazine and talk to fans and, and get to know people and, and everything. The next one is actually next weekend. I'll be at uh, in Allentown, Pennsylvania, something called the Harsh the, the Horror Sideshow Flea Market, and it's just a it's a a one day horror convention is what it is. Um, so I'll be there selling books and talking to people. I I think they their guest list includes uh, Tiffany Sheepus and uh, Eddie Deason. Um, I forget. That's a, a smaller one, so it's more obscure. It's, it's geared towards the horror nerd, is what it's geared <laughs> uh, Then in uh, April, I'll be at the uh, Trenton Punk Rock Flea Market. That's in Trenton, New Jersey. That one I've been to before. That's a lot of fun. Um, nice. They haven't announced guests for that yet, but there's the guests there are usually from the full spectrum. There is it's punk rock. So they have punk rock guests. They have, uh, last time they had video game guests, they had horror movie guests. Um, and it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, the section that I go to the vendors stay the same the whole weekend, but the main section of it, the, the vendors change day to day. So it, it's something if you're going to go it's worth, it's worth getting a two day password because it changes up. I don't remember the exact date, but I'll be at Horror on Main in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I won't, I won't be uh, selling anything, but I'll be at StokerCon, just walking around the floor, on uh, in May. That's in San Diego. Oh, cool. Okay. And and that's where I'm. Most of the writers in my book I've never actually met in person, so I'm, I'm hoping to meet a lot of them in person there. And all of that information is is listed on your website as well. Is that right? Yeah. For your appearances, perfect. Okay. Now I try to update that as soon as I as soon as I have something confirmed, I try to update it. Sometimes I forget. I'm I'm, a, okay. I'm a, well, the magazine is a one and a half man show, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Me and, I, and Ed Pettit, who's been on the show, he, he's my consulting editor. Whenever yeah. I whenever I get stuck on something, he helps me with it. For the most part, like 85% of it is all done by me. I don't think I've got access to websites. <laughs> you mentioned the punk rock tie-in. Is it, you're a fan of that music? I'm a fan of some of it. Not all. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I can say that for every genre of music. I'm, I'm a fan of some of it, not all of it. <laughs> well, the reason I ask that is a lot of people don't know that you are not only a Dracula expert, and know so much about this topic, not only the books, but the films that have come out over the years. But you are also an accomplished musician. You've done theme music in the past for the Rosenbach series, uh, Sundays with Dracula. I think you may have done Sundays with Frankenstein as well. And you've got concerts coming up. So tell us a little bit about your, your band and what kind of music you play. So I don't, I don't have any concerts coming up. I, I don't know where. You've heard that, but I, oh, you said you were attending a concert, but I guess you're not performing. But you, yeah, you have a attending. band. I'm I'm just attending. Yeah, yeah. Um, my my band is Pleated Gazelle. Um, you can find us on Spotify and and uh, Apple Music and and any any streaming service really, and Bandcamp. Um, and I say band is is really just me. Occasionally, I think one song my daughter played on, but for the most part, it's just me. I I do everything. And uh, like you said, I've done the music for all of the uh, Sundays with shows for the Rosenback. It was Dracula, Frankenstein, uh, Jane Eyre, uh, uh, Sense and Sensibility, or was it Pride and Prejudice? I forget. 
Um, and I, the one that's currently going on is uh, Sherlock Mondays. Um, I'm working on the next one now that I'm not allowed to say what it is yet, but okay. it, uh, I mean, next fall, I'm, I'm, I've got all the music recorded. I just can't nail a mix. It, it's, it's driving me nuts. It's like, it's, yeah. it's close. It's so close, but I just can't get it. And you do a lot of different genres of music as part of Pleated Gazelle? Yep. Yep. I, I do. My, my my biggest influences, and I don't sound anything like them, but they're the ones that influence me, are uh, uh, Frank Zappa, uh, Philip Glass, and King Crimson. They're, they're my biggest nice. influences. And as you see right there, they're pretty varied, but and they're pretty odd. Well, that's very cool that you've got uh, such diverse interests, your music with Pleated Gazelle, and of course, your love of Dracula and horror. Uh, once again, the website for Chucker, Christine, and his literary magazine, Dracula Beyond Stoker, uh, can be found at dbspress.com. Again, that's dbspress.com. Uh, there you can order uh, issues of the magazine, Dracula Beyond Stoker. Uh, issue 3.5 has just come out, and then the next full issue will be coming out in May. And again, that will look, uh, or that will be called The Brides of Dracula. That will be the theme. Again, that's coming up May of 2024. Tucker, as always, we appreciate your time and your insights. Thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I love it. Again, our guest has been Tucker Christine. We're going to take a short break. And then when we come back, we're going to do a little bit of a 70th anniversary tribute to Creature from the Black Lagoon, the anniversary for that film, February 12th, 1954. Hard to believe it's been 70 years. We'll talk um, a little bit more about Creature coming up in just a moment. Stay with us right here on the Ghostly Gallery Podcast. Welcome back to the Ghostly Gallery podcast. Again, our thanks to Tucker Christine for giving us his time to talk about Dracula Beyond Stoker. Now we're going to switch gears a little bit from vampires to Gilman creatures. February of 2024 actually marks the 70th anniversary of the iconic film, one of my favorites, Creature from the Black Lagoon. It debuted in American theaters February 12th, 1954, hard to believe, seven decades ago. While the film lacks the big-name presence of a Karloff, a Cheney, or a Lugosi, it is still a classic film because of its creative story, excellent costuming and special effects, and also beautifully done underwater cinematography. It's really a striking movie. Director Jack Arnold lays out the storyline in an easy-to-follow fashion. A scientific expedition along the Amazon River reveals evidence of a prehistoric creature living in the water. The leaders of the expedition attempt to capture this creature, who also becomes attracted to one of the group's members, portrayed by Julie Adams. The centerpiece of the film is the creature, or the gill man, as he's come to be known. Rather than rely on the heavy makeup application that was used in earlier films like Frankenstein or The Wolfman, the designers of the Gilman suit create a highly effective outfit made of sponge, rubber, and latex. And it looks good in the, on the black and white screen, and functionally it worked pretty well for the performers. Somewhat lost amidst the effects of the monstrous creature are the fine performances of an underrated cast. We mentioned Julie Adams, also Richard Carlson and Richard Denning all play their roles very smoothly. Their acting facilitates a fast-moving story that is full of movement and fright. Tracy, let's get some of your thoughts on the film. You had a chance to rewatch it recently. What do you think of Creature? I did. Well, I'll tell you, Bruce, it was a really long time since I first saw that movie. So last Saturday, I did rent it on YouTube and it was it was like three dollars or something like that. But it was well worth it. Um, you know, it 
I thought it was really great for a movie that's turning 70 years old. The picture quality I thought was fantastic. The black and white I thought was so vivid as well. Um, and the scenery was actually really beautiful. Um, the storyline was wonderful. And, you know, throughout the entire movie, I kept asking myself, you know, geez, how did they film something like that? And there were just so many awesome scenes that prompted me to do a little bit of research after watching the film. And I thought the acting was phenomenal from all of the cast. And honestly, I was really pleasantly surprised to see Richard Denning. I'm most familiar with his work on the radio drama, My Favorite Husband with Lucille Ball. So it it was awesome to see him acting because I don't recall seeing him in a visual role. Just it was it's all been audio for me. So it was quite a treat for me. Very nice. Good thoughts there. Tracy, here are a few other items of interest about Creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, first up, you have two actors who actually play the Gill Man, Ben Chapman, who did the scenes on land, and then Rico Browning, who played the creature in the water. Browning's work was especially noteworthy. Uh, he was an accomplished championship-level swimmer. He had to wear lead weights on his legs. Otherwise, the foam rubber suit would not properly sink into the water and, and stay below the surface. So you can imagine how heavy that was on his legs having lead weights. The suit also absorbed water, making it heavier the longer that he swam. And to make matters even more difficult, Browning had to hold his breath for as many as four minutes at a time, which is just unbelievable. But Browning was great. Um, sadly, he was the, the last of the major monsters from Universal Studios in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And we lost him not too long ago. He was the last surviving uh, member of uh, those great monsters portrayed in the Universal films and those black and white films from that era. Another point to make is about the design of the Gilman's costume and who actually that designer was. And this is something that remains somewhat in dispute. Most contemporary accounts now give the credit to Millicent Patrick as the creator or the designer of the Gilman costume, instead of the film's primary makeup artist, Bud Westmore, who's listed in the credits. So a lot of people have kind of shifted from Westmore to Patrick. However, Rico Browning, at one of his last public appearances at the Monster Bass uh, Convention in Pennsylvania, actually cast some doubts on the theory that Patrick was the primary designer saying that he believed two other lesser-known makeup artists at Universal, Universal actually deserve the credit over both Patrick and Westmore. So if we listen to what Browning says, it was really neither Patrick nor Westmore. It was two other people. He didn't remember their names. They were two other makeup artists who presumably worked under the leadership of Westmore. He believes they're the ones who deserve the credit. A final point about the film, it was shot in 3D, so theatergoers had to wear special viewing glasses when watching in the movie theater. Generally, back in 1954 when the film was shown, when it was in larger theaters, they did show it in 3D. Those would be larger theaters located in big cities. But in smaller theaters in less populated neighborhoods, it was actually shown flat or without the 3D effect. Of course, now we watch uh, the film today and we watch it flat as opposed to 3D, and it certainly is very effective uh, in that area. Many historians regard Creature from the Black Lagoon as the last of the great universal horror films. Um, it's not a bad assessment, although um, I guess there might be another film or two that you could slip in there, but I would tend to agree. I think Creature is really the last of those great iconic movies. I think it's also safe to say that The Gill Man deserves its place alongside Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, The Invisible Man, The Wolf Man, as one of the iconic monsters of that black and white era of horror movies. It certainly should be in the same place with those other favorite monsters. In summary, uh, it's a terrific film. It's an absolute classic. Four stars for Creature from the Black Lagoon. 
Tracy, final question for you. How many stars would you give Creature? I gave it a four as well. I, I I tell you, it's it's just one of those movies. You know, I I thought the Gilman, the costume itself was really creepy. I think the eyes on the costume were kind of the creepiest for me. Yeah. And just the breathing, just the breathing <laughs> of the monster. <laughs> yeah. So I I definitely say it was for it was really worth it. And you know, I, I'm so new to looking at a lot of these older movies. It's one I would highly recommend for for people to see if they haven't already seen it. Absolutely. Uh, a classic is a film that holds up over time and Creature from the Black Lagoon has done exactly that came out 70 years ago, and it's still as good for audiences today. Horror fans today, I think, would still appreciate it just as horror fans did in the early 1950s. Tracy, thanks for being with us again, uh, for co-hosting and producing. Always appreciated. Thank you. Oh, thanks so much, Bruce. It's been fun. We thank Tracy. We thank our guest, Tucker Christine, and of course, all the listeners as well. We're happy that you have joined us over this last hour or so in this Museum of the Macabre. And we hope you'll join us next time right here in the Ghostly Gallery.